Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. We've got 11 titles alive and ready to be part of your DVD or Blu-ray collection as we add them to the Warner Archive collection. We're going to talk about these new editions this week, both films for the big screen to watch on your possible big screen, as well as films from the small screen, which is now getting bigger, meaning movies and television. We have a lot of both. First on tap, we're always excited when we have something new to blue, and this week we've got a lot of new blue, both movies and TV. Let's Let's start with the movies, and this is a big movie for us indeed. 1975's classic neo-noir thriller, Night Moves, directed by Arthur Penn, starring the great Gene Hackman. First time on Blu-ray, remastered from a 4K scan off the original camera negative, and we'll be talking about that in depth. Then we go from the sublime noir to the sublime humor of both Steve Martin and Rick Moranis in My Blue Heaven. Then it's TV on Blu-ray and DVD. As on Blu-ray, we have two hits from the CW, the first of, we hope to be, many seasons of Riverdale. It's Archie with a new twist. And Lucifer, the complete second season, an encore from the Warner Archive collection, also on Blu-ray. And on DVD, we're proud to say, what the heck, here's the eighth and penultimate season of The Middle on DVD. Then we go to films back in print on DVD that have been out of print that were originally released in celebration of what was Catherine Hepburn's 100th birthday. That was about 10 years ago, and they went out of print, and now they're back in print. Morning Glory from 1933 when she said the Calalilis are in bloom again. And Sylvia Scarlet from 1935, Dragon Seed from 1944, Without Love from 1945 with Spencer Tracy, Undercurrent from 1946, and her TV movie remake of The Corn is Green, directed by her great friend George Cukor. So a lot to discuss today, and how better a way to start off than one of the most requested films in our library to make the journey to Blu-ray, and we've done it in style. The Great Night Moves, directed by Arthur Penn, starring Gene Hackman, Jennifer Warren, and a very young Melanie Griffith. And a very young James Woods. That's right. This is one of uh, Arthur Penn's best movies, and a Mm -hmm. career full of really good movies, but it's very highly regarded among those who are well-vested in the canon, Yes, but it is not popularly known as being a seminal noir, which it definitely is a seminal neo-noir. But this is also such a great film of a time and a place mm-hmm. in America mm-hmm. in that it is a mystery, it is a purposeful looking back elements of noir detective mystery story, but it's post-Kennedy assassinations, both of them, and it takes place in a very different kind of world, a world whose compass is perhaps been adrift and I mean everything about this film is multi-layered including the title which is more of a reference to chess than it is to nighttime even though it's spelled like nighttime or Bob Seger the thing about this film is you've you really hit the nail on the head Dan because this film among cineasts has been well regarded for decades as truly one of the most important films of the 1970s. It hasn't had the reputation of films like some of the Altman Pictures and Chinatown where it's heavily booked on the revival circuit or, you know, even the fact that the Blu-ray is only coming out now. But part of that 
is not to be self-congratulatory, but we see these holes in the Blu-ray availability and we try to fill them with all sorts of different kinds of films, which can't be stressed high enough. This film was a critical success when it came out, modest box office performer. I don't think the studio lost money on it. They didn't make very much on it, but over the years it has continued to be the kind of film that filmmakers yeah. of yeah. future generations it's, it's taken like like it's had a slow climb from 40 years cuz it happened to come out the same summer as jaws when you know everything really started to change they're very similar movies when you think about it <laughs> well because they're both about things you don't see and they're in the water and they're in the water it really is a film that constantly rewards repeat viewing mm -hmm. each time you watch this movie you get another layer of the story, another element. You see another play on words in the dialogue, in the action. There's some very, I mean, the film literally ends on a metaphor that's not a metaphor that works in the pulp universe of the book, of the film, but is also like, you know, it's a commentary on our own existential state. The film, in brief, Gene Hackman, in one of his career best performances, plays a middle-aged detective, former football player, who takes on a case to track down a a runaway child of a Hollywood star. And this is the Melanie Griffith character who's, a, shall we say, a precocious young teenager. Yeah, acting out. And, uh, and kind then of the, art imitating life. Yes, yes, very much so, right. Child oh, right. of a movie star. And eventually Harry does track her down, and in tracking her down, some other mysteries unfold and some murders. Having just recently rewatched it for The Blue, uh -huh. uh, I have to say, and I mentioned this to George as soon as I saw him today, which was like, Wow, does this movie look great. It's insane how great it looks. And then, George, you said... That's why we scanned it from the original camera negative, and you get such amazing results when you do that. We scan the original camera negative at 4K. If we're going to pull an original camera negative for the creation of a Blu-ray disc, we need to create a 4K preservation scan at the same time in order to have access to the element. And in most cases, Cases we do our mastering from interpositives, which are a step away from the original camera negative, and a well-made interpositive can yield phenomenal results, as we've seen on many of our Blu-rays. However, the interpositive that existed on this movie was made at a very bad lab back in the 70s, and it didn't look very nice. I'm going to be very genteel in my description. I could be much more rustic. But I'll just say that it didn't look nearly as good as it could. And we don't settle for second best when we're going to put out a Blu-ray. It would be very easy to take the old, as others would, they would take an old master. I think in this film we had an old 1080i master that was made from that bad IP. And that goes out of the Blu-ray disc. And I was like, really? You're going to do that now with Blu-ray being around almost 10 years? But the market is filled with these bad Blu-rays. And it's really kind of frustrating because there's something about the format that demands you give it the attention that the movie looks the best that it could or else you shouldn't be putting it on Blu-ray. But it's worth it, especially when you're dealing with a great film from a great filmmaker. And the result
results really are there on the screen. It looks luscious. And now in addition to the positive separations, we now have a good preservation element in the new 4K scan. And I have to, again, take my hat off to the wonderful colorists at Warner Brothers Motion Picture Imaging who make all of our masters look so great. They really outdid themselves on this. And they also were the ones that said, hey, that IP you sent over just isn't going to cut the mustard if you want this film to look great. And so, uh, But my question to you, and, and this is one that has been asked, why don't we scan the negative every time? The reason we don't is you really only want to go back to the negative as a last resort. Right. And if you have a beautiful interpositive that can yield a superb image, which most of the time is the case, then we go that way. Like each time it goes through the machine, mm -hmm. it wears the print. Now, to be fair, the wear on a camera negative, anytime you take it, you're taking out a cut camera negative where every shot is spliced mm. together. The opticals are built into the negative. Those splices can come apart. Things can get damaged. You really don't want to do that unless you absolutely have to. So when we did this, that's why we do the 4K scan, because we're able to capture all of the information that's on that negative and have a preservation copy of it. Like a raw copy. And the interpositive theoretically should function as that preservation copy, along with the positive separations which basically break down the three primary colors and that's a backup if your camera negative is shot okay in this case our camera negative was absolutely gorgeous and the interpositive was just mediocre it wasn't unusable and in other hands it might have ended up on blu-ray but not here our standards are too high and sometimes that leads to people being disappointed that we haven't released this film or that film but frankly if we can't make it look great we're not going to put it out until we can and sometimes that's a financial decision sometimes there are other factors involved in this case we were very very fortunate because all the planets were aligned we've created this beautiful new master and this is the way people will now see the film in other media as well mm -hmm. but right now there's nothing better than a blu-ray disc for a classic movie and uh, I am just tickled to death that this film looks as good as it does and it sounds as great as it does it's a mono movie but it doesn't really need to be stereophonic it's, it's it fun. really I... carries itself as a piece of its era. Now, the next one we're going to talk about is very, very different. It came from 15 years later. But interestingly enough, both films capture Southern California oh, yeah. of its eras very clearly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sort of rewatching. I didn't mean to interrupt George. He's talking about My Blue Heaven. And uh, rewatching it, I was actually seeing San Diego. Because we go down to San Diego for Comic-Con, and I'm watching it this time, and I never remember thinking about this. But I was like, oh, yeah, downtown San Diego has really changed. And where they shot it out in the canyons outside of San Diego has really changed. But the uh, environment because the movie is about a mobster from New Jersey who is relocated to suburban San Diego, is about San Diego and the environment. Like, that's a character, and that's a great case for the Blu-ray. And you can get arugula in San Diego now. Yeah, you can. You and can this is 27 years old. Life is not fair. <laughs> it does not feel like a 27-year-old movie, and it also is a testament to the amazing talents of two great comedic actors, the very formidable Steve Martin and Mr. Rick Moranis. But I also would, upon my rewatching, uh, really took 
more note than I had when I saw the movie originally in the theater of how uh, integral and how great Joan Cusack is in this film. Oh, yeah. She's, I mean, she's very much actually the heart of the movie. She's terrific in everything she mm-hmm. ever does. But she does really but, elevate and, and yeah. ground actually grounds the comedy yeah. because Steve Martin's character is a little wackier for a modern audience. I mean, if you know Steve Martin, he's going to be wacky, but we're in a post-Sopranos world. This is also yeah. a different kind of Steve Martin. Yeah. You know, he yeah. was trying to do something a little different and his career was on a trajectory at that time because films would follow like L.A. Story where he would really go off the beaten path. Interestingly enough, he had gone off the beaten path almost a decade earlier with the same director, Herb Ross, The Amazing Pennies from Heaven, which was far from a comedy and far from anything he'd ever done before. Confused many young children. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think many young children got to see it. I did. It was rated R, so, you know. HBO. But, oh, there you go. In the theater. But in in any event, My Blue Heaven is a mob comedy. It came out the same year as Goodfellas. Same source material. Yeah. Because uh, Mitch Pelegi wrote Wise Guy and Nora Ephraim was his wife. And they simultaneously interviewed Henry Hill. So so one person got Goodfellas out of it, and then Nora Ephron, being Nora Ephron, got My Blue Heaven. And only a few years later, Nora Ephron would be directing and writing on her own, not just writing. And uh, interestingly enough, you know, she comes from a Hollywood pedigree herself because her parents were both screenwriters. So we really have a great body of work that she left uh, since she passed away. This is really not an appreciated film, and uh, we're delighted to bring it to Blue. It looks looks great. The new master is gorgeous. And this one is stereophonic. And you know it as soon as it starts with the great music where they play the title tune. And for your trivia buffs out there, this is not the first movie to be titled My Blue Heaven. We don't want you to think this is a 1950 musical comedy with Betty Grable and Dan Daly. No, this is a very different movie. But this is ripe for reappraisal and perfect to be added to your collection. And if you love Steve Martin on Blue, we'll have even more to talk about in that department very soon soon. Meanwhile, we're going to move with Blu-ray to TV and uh, characters we know and love from the area of Riverdale were transformed this season on the CW network into a very dark and uh, not particularly comedic hour-long Oh, it's series. got some comedy. There's well, a little bit. It's a little black comedy, a little dramedy, a little self-aware. Right. It's a, it's a very textured show. But it's, it's unlike anything that has ever come before. Riverdale is seen through the lens of Twin Peaks. The, yes. Yeah. That's it. Perfect. But Archie Comics has been very progressive in its adaptation of right. the characters. But for people who, who don't read yes, comic no. books and who only know Archie, from Sugar Sugar and Jingle Jangle. This is a very different, this different not Riverdale. That, not that Riverdale, although yeah. they do sing Sugar Sugar. Absolutely. <laughs> As well they should, because that song is great. Riverdale made its debut on the CW earlier this year. We are so honored within just, you know, a handful of months later to be able to bring such a clever and remarkable show, which will start its second season in October, I believe. Mm -hmm. Such a clever show to Blu-ray and uh, you will be able to purchase it. I think it's really gotten a big fan following already, both from the comic world and from the TV world. No, and there's been like a a sort of a a crossover back from people who have discovered Mm -hmm. the show are now getting into the comics. 
So the, yeah, the full synergy they, is occurring. I was walking by one of the few newsstands that are left and prominently displayed are the Riverdale comics by Archie based on the CW show. So it's back in comic form as well. So it, it really loops around. What makes this show kind of fun, and we've been talking about other CW shows, so if you're a fan, if you haven't watched the show and you're a fan of something like The 100, this is where you've got not just a layer of, of kid characters who are the primary drivers of the story, but there's a whole layer of their parents as well that are probably just as important. Yeah, and much like The 100, the older generation, which is you know, taking a backseat to the trials and tribulations and tragedies of the younger generation have their own very meaningful impact upon the plot and the direction of what's going on because they're where the secrets began. And the show very cleverly casts people f associated with yes. youth programming like Luke Perry, like Machinamic from Twin Peaks, like Skeet Ulrich, playing much more grizzled versions of, oh, yeah, of oh, these yes. people. And and Molly Ringwald, mm -hmm. which is... Red hair. Yeah, red hair. Well, and it's just such a touch of class for them to be thinking along those lines, and that is what makes this series so unique and as, different. As a film fan, each of the episodes is titled after a classic film. And as Matthew <laughs> duly pointed out, Jughead is a film fan. Yes. And George, I don't know if you've noticed this, but... Jughead's movie posters are about 90% Warner Archive releases. His movie posters are 100%. His, they showed a non-whack film at the drive-in for the last, but all the drive-in posters, uh, Black Scorpion, I mean, he has incredible taste in films. And it also is very much, uh, dare we say, it's a, a production savings. Well, of course. Um, you know, <laughs> it's Warner it, Brothers. It, it reminds me, there, there's an old episode of Friends where they go into a video store, and there's all these video cassettes. <laughs> 95% of them were from the Warner Home Video Library. But, you you know, can see the labels yeah. on there. I think someone over on TV production is a whack fan because there was yeah. an episode of Arrow where they sit down to watch TV and they're watching the original Joan Crawford Possessed, not the second one, the one with Clary Gable, which is not a movie that you think, oh, yeah, let's have Oliver Queen and his sister watch a movie. Let's pick No, they, and they've done that more than once, yeah. and I, I attribute that to the impeccable taste of Greg Berlanti. There you go. But, but Jughead, if you're out there, you can write us a letter. I'll, yeah. I'll send now, you a Dirty Dozen poster. Speaking of oh. DC Comics, it's DC's brand Vertigo Comics that brought Lucifer to the pages of comic book fans everywhere. And last year, Lucifer debuted on Fox, and yeah. nobody quite knew if this was going to take off or not. Well, it sure did, and it's only gained its popularity and gained in its fandom, it's especially huge. for the second season. And we brought you the first season on Blu-ray last year, and this year we follow up with season number two. And things really heat up, shall we say, for <laughs> Lucifer. I love this show. Although this show in this season still continues its nod to police procedurals with a supernatural wink. This show also has a an even tighter overarching season-long plot involving new-to-the-cast edition Trisha Helfer, most famous for great work in Battlestar Galactica, who is playing Lucifer's and Amanda Deal's mother, who and we could call Lilith or just goddess. She's doing it differently than she's approached other roles that we've talked about on this show as well. She's kind of almost unrecognizable because of she's playing a character. 
and has a wonderful season arc. And this is the most contemporary of like dramedies have these great season arcs now that play out wonderfully. And this is why it's great to have it on a disc because there is an overarching story over the whole. And there are also extras. Oh, yeah. And and the same thing on Riverdale, too. There were a bunch of extras on that. So those of you who love extras and uh, getting a little background, both of these titles have uh, very I, special extras. I watched on Riverdale, I watched the 2016 Comic-Con panel. I thought that that was a fun one to include. Well, it's always fun to see what is presented to fans before yeah, the show launches. Before anybody saw it. Right. So it's like, how do you explain the show to fans right. there at Comic-Con? So I'm like, boom, I got to watch that right away. Now we'll go from something that is relatively new to something that has warmth and familiarity. Now about to begin its ninth and final season on ABC is the great sitcom The Middle which we've been bringing you since its fifth season. This is the complete eighth season, and it's about the Heck family, which is about American as apple pie with a twist. And the I twist being they're just as dysfunctional as your family. There is. you go. You really feel like this is a real family, and with all the TV families we've experienced over the decades, this is one of the most fascinatingly dysfunctional and funny families that's ever been in a sitcom. And by the eighth season, they haven't had any of the weird changes that happen in eighth seasons on other family shows. Like the kids are growing up, but they're still their essential selves and still creating the chaos. And the kids are growing up and the show isn't finding a need to like right. have new kids there, there's come no in. There's no cousin Oliver. No, yeah. no cousin no, Oliver. And as the kids leave, we see the parents happily anticipate Empty Nest only to discover that even Empty Nest might not be happy. This is a show that has been consistently driving ratings and very much uh, endeared to its fans, and we're delighted that they can own it through the Warner Archive on DVD, and you can look forward to the middle, complete eighth season being available. As you hear this podcast, you can run to your computer and order it. Now we're going to talk about six movies that were out of print on DVD that we're bringing back on DVD, and the difference is that uh, they were released in a collection for the 100th birthday of Katherine Hepburn about a decade ago. Now each of them gets their own release with beautiful original artwork on the covers, and uh, we start with Morning Glory, which really was not her first film, but this is the film for which she won the first of four Academy Awards as Best Actress. And uh, it's a film about the theater. She's terrific in it. And this was made in 1933 at RKO. It was later remade unsuccessfully by Sidney the Met, of all people, <laughs> as Stage Struck with Henry Fonda and Susan Strasberg. And some films you should leave alone and not remake. This is one of them. And well, uh, well, it's know, really terrific. You see, by looking at that, you see that Katherine Hepburn made the movie, right? Of course. Same, you know, it, it's it's obvious, but it's really obvious when you see somebody remake it and you can't recapture that magic. Now, the second film in this group is uh, Sylvia Scarlet, which was the first of three teamings Katherine Hepburn would have with a very enviable co-star, that being Cary Grant. Now, the latter two are extraordinarily famous and uh, on the top hundred of the AFI, bringing a baby in the Philadelphia story. But the first film that Katherine Hepburn made with Cary Grant is not as nearly well known and deserves to be Sylvia Scarlet. And this is directed by George Cukor, who also directed The Philadelphia Story. This is a very provocative film for its time. 
gender bender. Although it does expect us to believe that Cary Grant wouldn't know that Catherine Hepburn was a woman. Hey, that you know, we we also have Victor Victoria. Yeah, I mean, it's a tradition. You have to suspend your di- your belief and just go with the flow. Although it's not his actual native accent, we do get to have Cary Grant speak in an accent that is closer to his native accent for the whole film, which is fun. Catherine Hepburn, especially in these early films, and that's what's fun about this collection is. You just see she's a bundle of energy, and it's almost like a force of chaos unleashed in these films and bowls her way through. Now, Hepburn was under contract to RKO for many, many years. Her years at RKO did not end on a high box office note. She was pronounced box office poison, along with people like Fred Astaire and Joan Crawford. (laughs) I'll take that kind of poison any day. But she promptly picked up her baggage, went to New York, starred in the Philadelphia story, won rave reviews, had a hit play, bought the screen rights to the play, and uh, MGM wanted to make the movie, but they didn't want to make it with her. And she said, well, I own the rights. You have to make it with me, and I get to pick the the director and I get to pick the co-stars. We all know what happened. The film was a big hit and her film career was resurrected and she had an MGM contract and made many films at the studio for, I would say, close, over a decade actually, because the Philadelphia story was in 1940 and she was still making pictures for MGM in the 50s, uh, as late as uh, Pat and Mike in 1952. So, in the middle of her MGM contract, she made a film that was decidedly different and it's called Dragon Seed from 1940 and it's based on a very famous novel by the very famous novelist Pearl S. Buck, author of The Good Earth and many other famous works. And in this film, Catherine Hepburn has the unfortunate circumstances of having to be dressed as an Asian woman, and that was an unfortunate practice of the time. But the film overcomes that. We still see this today. It's an interesting film because it, it falls into the category of films that were made during the war to bolster up domestic views of our allies, and one of those was China. The role that Katherine Hepburn plays in it, while it it has its unfortunate uh, casting, she's playing a very, very progressive woman character in it, and she's playing a, the role of a woman in, in wartime in a leadership position and an educated woman that really stands out, and not just against uh, traditional Asian society at the time, but even in the U.S. This was a meaty female lead role of a woman doing something that was not normally a woman's role. So it has this kind of strange balance to oh, it. Oh, absolutely. And there are many things to recommend it. And it's an important film. And uh, she's really terrific in it. And again, this is MGM. They okay. were, you know, making sure that everything had meaning and... Right gravitas behind it. It's a really, really great movie. The next film in in this grouping is from 1945, and the teaming of Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, who were also a couple in real life after their first film, Woman of the Year, 1942, they starred in a series of films at MGM and Without Love from 1945 is probably one of the lesser known of the pictures they made together but it's really a delightful romantic comedy and Spencer Tracy's wonderful with Hepburn in it and we can't talk about this one without mentioning a wonderful stellar supporting performance from recent Metro Arrival by two years or so. Lucille Ball. Oh, I, who's thought, terrific I thought you, in yeah. you were going to go with Keenan Wynn. Yeah, this was Keenan <laughs> Wynn's first Keenan, big role. Keenan Wynn had been at MGM for quite some time. <laughs> but uh, it's a 
it's one of the bigger parts that he had. Yeah. Yes. He stands no, out. But Lucy's great in this. She plays a real estate agent, I guess, and, and she just waltzes in and you're like, whoa, it's Lucy. And and, and, and the thing her. that's interesting is that uh, Lucy and Catherine Hepburn had worked together at RKO, most notably in Stage, Stage Door. Door. Both of them were at very different points in their career. You get to see a little peek at the Lucy that we would come to know from television is Lucy Ricardo and Lucy Carmichael and Lucy Carter and all the Lucys that would come thereafter. Yeah. You get a little bit of TV Lucy in this movie, but it's really Hepburn and Tracy's show and yeah. it's a fine, fine film. The next film is very different and very dramatic, Undercurrent, where Robert Taylor is entwined with Catherine Hepburn. And there's another Robert in the story, too. Uh, the dual Robert. Robert Mitchum. He just had uh, his 100th birthday. As this, we record this. Yeah, as we record this, sorry. But I watched this right on that day, so it caught me right here. What's remarkable about it is that it was directed by Vincent Minnelli. That's right. Once again, proving that he could direct any kind of film and do it successfully. Here we have him directing a noir. Yeah. A few years later, he'd be doing a costume epic like Madame Bovary. Of course, some of the greatest musicals ever made, like Meet Me in St. Louis and The Bandwagon. And one of Lucy's greatest movies. The Long, Long Trailer. Great comedy like <laughs> Father of the Bride, which we have available on Blu-ray, don't forget. But um, Minnelli was under contract to MGM for over 20 years, and his output was stellar. This is a very different departure for him. Yeah. And uh, he takes on almost a Hitchcockian type mm -hmm. of yeah, tale, yeah, yeah. and very admirably so. One of Hepburn's favorite directors, probably her most favorite director, was also her dear friend, George Cukor. And uh, by 1979, it was mostly television where Catherine Hepburn was seen as opposed to the big screen, although two years later she would win an Oscar mm -hmm. as Best Actress for On Golden Pond, her fourth. But she was making television appearances of great significance in the 70s, like Love Among the Ruins with Laurence Olivier. That was also directed by George Cukor. And so in 1979, Warner Brothers Television and uh, George Cukor gave Catherine Hepburn the opportunity to bring to the small screen something that had been filmed by Warner Brothers for the big screen 30 years plus earlier with Betty Davis in the leading role of Miss Moffat. And that is The Corn is Green, based on the play by Emlyn Williams. And that's a DVD that we also have out, the mm -hmm. Betty Davis version. She was playing a, when she was in her 30s still, middle to late-aged teenager. Uh, teacher, inspiring young student, and uh, it's a great play, and it's been revived oft times over the years, but uh, the decision to film it with Catherine Hepburn, a little more age-appropriate, taking a very different tack on the Miss Moffat character, but the story is timeless, and when you have Cukor and Catherine Hepburn together, the results are nothing less than stellar. It surprised me. This film really surprised me, and there are two big differences, because I had just seen uh, the Betty Davis one. One, the location photography in Wales and actually filming at the old coal mines and they reset <laughs> up the steam engines. I've been on tours of mines and it sounded like a mine and stuffing the little kids in the hole. You really, it felt more realistic in some ways. Oh, absolutely. Her then, desire to pull them out of mm -hmm. the bowels of, of the hell of a coal mine and, and get them in education is a very palpable because in the 46 film you don't really or 45 it, um, it's sort of you don't really see the kids in the coal mine you no. hear about it you see them coming back but yeah 
this made-for-television version really also is an example of the really high-quality made-for-television product that was created at that time. We now are in an era where mm-hmm. material created for television nine times out of ten is more impressive than the material created for motion picture screens. But television offers creative people an opportunity to do so on much smaller budgets and in a much more targeted audience. This was a time where you couldn't possibly make a big screen remake of The Corner is Green with Katherine Hepburn. Right. But for television, it was perfect. And it was worth revisiting for the very reasons yeah. you bring up at the location of the and and it's in it's presented in widescreen here in 1979, it couldn't have been in widescreen. No, but it was intended to be shown in theaters overseas. Okay, that's the answer. And that comes across, and that's part of the... So it, it feels very modern TV, and that's also why, because it's 16 by 9, it's got great locations, and it's got a Catherine Hepburn. What can go wrong? There were many, including your beloved Last Dinosaur, there were many productions <laughs> yes. in that era that's right. that were broadcast on television here in the U.S., but shown in theaters overseas sees lest we forget Salem's lot. Oh yeah. So this version of the corn is green is far more realistic and yet as a kind of an irony, this was also the time that Betty Davis was returning to the role mm. on the stage in an ill fated musical version <laughs> of the Corn is Green called yeah. Miss Moffat, which never opened on Broadway. It closed out of town. But in any event, all six of these Catherine Hepburn movies are now back in print for your delectation and delight and ownership on DVD and you can add them to your collection today. Now, it wouldn't be a Warner Archive podcast without a letter from you, the consumer, writing to us, uh, asking us questions. And uh, if you want to send us a letter, we prefer it being crayon, but we'll take it any way you can send it. If you want to send us a letter, Matthew, where should our listeners send their letters to? Warner Archive podcast, 3400 Riverside Drive, B160-4, Burbank, California, 91522. And this letter came today, so we actually have a letter. Thank you, and this is from Michael from Irvington, New York, who has written to us before. I've been listening to back episodes of the podcast Uh and, and just heard your discussion of the goodbye girl. Before asking my question, I'd like to share a personal anecdote involving that movie. Uh, a few years ago, I was watching the movie in a gym while working out, as one does. The movie in question was the goodbye girl and mid-weight lift. I became aware of a large man behind me scowling at the screen. At that moment, a seated shirtless Richard Dreyfus was playing an acoustic guitar and I braced myself for the onlooker to voice a crude assessment of the film or of me on the basis of the film, but he met my gaze, then stabbed a meaty finger at the screen and grunted, goodbye girl, good movie. That's very interesting. <laughs> my question does not involve the goodbye girl, but you refer sometimes to the different reputations of studios whose libraries are now owned by uh, Warner Brothers and their competitors. Some of these differences seem intuitive. MGM had musicals, while Universal had monsters and Disney cartoons. But are there subtleties I am missing? What were the reputations of the studios back in the day? Well, I think that's a very good question. There are major studios today such as Columbia and Universal, which during the heyday of 
Hollywood's golden age were considered B-level studios. And they would maybe make one prestigious movie a year. And it wasn't until decades later, after the Hollywood era ended, that those studios rose to become a true major studio. Then you have Disney. During the golden age of Hollywood, they were just making animated cartoons and, of course, Walt Disney did the first animated feature here in this country of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and then started making live action family films in the 40s and so forth and so on. Disney did not become a major player in live action filmmaking not intended for families until the mid 80s when there was a change in management. So that has shifted. MGM still exists in name. The actual MGM that existed Previously, the library belongs to us and uh, the lot belongs to Sony, where Columbia Pictures is. And uh, the company that owns the name MGM and the Lion MGM is actually technically an extension of United Artists Corporation. And UA was a distribution company. So that's a big shift. The studios that were major studios that stayed major studios that never lost their prominence and power, Warner Brothers, of course, Paramount, and 20th Century Fox. But all those other studios went through major changes, even to the point where technically United Artists doesn't really exist anymore, except it's now called MGM. But the MGM that does exist now is really a library holding company that co-produces movies and doesn't have its own distribution. So it's not really considered a major studio anymore. They call it the Big Six. So I think the biggest change in the Big Six is that Disney, Columbia, and Universal were not considered major studios, you know, during the 30s and 40s in the golden age of Hollywood. And now, of course, they're as big as and major as well, they get. I think that in what he's sort of asking in his question is like he's sort of thinking of genre. But when we refer to it, we, we're referring to texture. I don't necessarily agree with that because most of the studios, including MGM, MGM is famous for its musicals, like Universal is famous for its mm -hmm. horror movies. But the studios made films in all genres. Right. There was actually an excerpt from uh, David Thompson's new book about Warner Brothers in the posted on the Daily Beast, in which David Thompson actually touches on this sort of studio personality. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's, in this case, specifically writing about Warner Brothers and, and credits Warner Brothers with being different because it was the first studio to really push characters that talked like people do in real and life. And social issues. And social issues. And that's what I think he's more asking, and that's and, why I use the and word MGM, texture. MGM, I would associate not so much more with musicals than with prestige, the right. top directors, the top yeah, writers, right. the top performers. The top stars, everything is right. top everything. Uh, yep. and now, then, now it gets a little trickier when you start talking about the output of uh, Fox and Paramount, because it really depends on who was running those studios at the time. You get very different films. And to be fair, during the golden age of Hollywood, Daryl Zanuck, Grand 20th Century Fox, Paramount was run by Adolf Zukor and Barney Balaban, and they pretty much held fort, you know, forth 
RKO went out of business in 1957 and really floundered from the beginning of its existence. And they were not unlike Universal and Columbia. They had one or two big pictures a year and the rest were mid-level. So the thing is about the about Fox, Paramount, MGM, Warner Brothers, they really, of the majors that endured, they really were capable of making all sorts of genres. It's just that history looks back and says, oh, MGM made the best musicals. Well, in the 30s, they certainly didn't. Right, right. Yeah. You know, it was Busby Berkeley here at Warner Brothers, and it was Fred and Ginger at RKO that were, and Shirley Temple at Fox that were making far more money at the box office with musicals. It really wasn't until the 40s that MGM found their footing with musicals. But yet, the instinct is to think of them only in one direction. I think it's, as I look at it, the studios that are hardest to really classify, Paramount is probably the hardest because mm-hmm. they they were all over the place. Yep. And they made some great films in all genres. In those days, each studio really had a distinctive footprint and look whether and sound. And it's become, in the last several decades, people don't go to see a movie because of the studio that made it. Mm-hmm. And well, uh, and also they controlled a certain number of theaters as well. Right. So it was like when you went into a Warner theater, you would see Warner. Mo- you know, they controlled depending the where you lived, but depending on where you lived, absolutely. Because the way that that all worked was there were Warner theater. Like Fox had their theaters on the West Coast, and MGM had the Lowe's theaters on the East Coast, and you know there right. was a real. Exactly. It was a patchwork. That brings up a very interesting point because Columbia and Universal were both studios that did not have theater chains. RKO was born out of a theater chain along with RCA. So it's really a fascinating question that we really don't have time (laughs) to answer in detail here. But the proof is in the pudding what films have endured, what films have lasted. And I have to say, and this is unprejudiced, I think that Warner Brothers films from the 30s are, and I hate to say anything negative about my beloved MGM, but Warner Brothers films from the 1930s hold up better than Mm. anybody else's. Yeah, because they got to the heart of it and you get a feel of the time and as well as being universal because it's a, you know. No pun intended. Yeah, (laughs) from the gut. What Uh, else the letter has to say? Well, he said, thanks always for the care you take in preparing these films for release and for the discussions you share on the podcast. P.S., when I last wrote, you guessed this was a dot matrix printer. Huh. Not so. This letter is being printed by a 35-year-old Daisy Wheel printer. So it is a printer. Daisy Wheel. An ad I just found on the internet indicates that it cost over $2,100 new. And when running, it, it sounds like somebody threw a fistful of fireworks into a metal trash can. There you go. But so those were actual fonts, right? That's so it didn't have that look. Well, there you go. Computer history, movie history. Well, the next letter we may receive will be typed with this electric ball. We haven't received anything with carbon copies yet. Well, you never know. You never know. <laughs> but that wraps up this one archive podcast. But fear not, we'll be back again very, very soon. Maybe as soon as next week with a whole additional lineup of goodies ready for you on Blu-ray and DVD. But until that time, I'm George Feltenstein. I'm Matt Patterson. I'm Breakfast at Tiffany's. But this place is strictly in cold blood. And on that note, thanks for listening to this Warner Archive podcast. Mm-hmm.